The story of humanity begins in the darkest depths of the ocean more than four billion years ago. For countless leagues, the water is cold and barren above a flat, featureless seafloor. Finally, we find a crack in the seabed with boiling water shooting up through chimneys of black rock. The sea here is a rich soup of minerals, proteins, and even DNA. It's a bustling nursery in the lonely void. In one corner, nestled in a tight crack on the seafloor, are tiny bubbles of fat. Each bubble has its own blend of primordial soup. Given enough time, one recipe does something special. Proteins start to push the bubble apart from the inside. For a minute, it looks like a suicide mission, like the bubble will burst. Neighboring bubbles are trying similar experiments with much grislier ends. But then, just as all looks lost, the proteins squeeze the walls back in, pinching one long bubble into two. After a few minutes, this next generation splits again. One daughter explodes with an unstable recipe, but the other splits in two with ease. If it can keep this up, this bubble could do some incredible things. It is brief, it is dark, and it is precarious. But this dance marks the first day of life on Earth. Hello, and welcome to Bedrock, a podcast on Earth's earliest history. I'm your host, Dylan Wilmeth. Episode 23. It's Alive. Part 1. Order and Chaos. Welcome to the Season 1 finale. Finally, we've made it to life. Since Episode 16, we've taken a long and winding road describing life's origins. If you've been listening since then, you now know why the question where did life come from, is not so easily answered. First, the conversation needs a bit of background lingo. What is an organic molecule? What exactly are proteins, fats, and DNA? Hopefully, I was able to guide you through without needing an entire dictionary. Second, the process took a long time and had many complicated steps. As they say, Rome was not built in a day, and the same is true for life. The first cell did not simply pop out from nothing. Let's follow up on that thought for a second. You might have heard that the universe tends towards chaos, entropy, decay, a lack of order over time. It's easier to break objects down than build them up. We don't see cars or buildings forming in space, so how did life come around, which is far more complex? I'm not a physicist, but here's a simplified answer. While chaos and decay do increase over time, it doesn't stop local pockets of order, of growth, for a short time. Remember way back in episode 4, we saw the simple force of gravity pulling atoms together to make the sun. That growth is balanced by a release of heat and energy decaying across the universe. Eventually, 
that decay will win, and the sun will die. On a smaller scale, gravity brought asteroids together to build the Earth, which releases its own heat back out. Eventually, Earth will cool and die. As stars and planets decay and release energy, that energy can still be used to build other things. In episode 18, the violent explosions of other stars released enough energy to shove carbon and hydrogen atoms together, increasing order and building the first organic molecules. In episode 22, we saw Earth release heat into water. That heat provided energy for simple molecules to build into complex proteins and DNA, small pockets of order in a vast, chaotic universe. Many people balk when they hear that the origin of life was a random event. I can sympathize, because while this long process wasn't planned or designed, it also wasn't a simple coin flip, a straight roll of the dice. It was a logical series of events, cycles of chaos and order. Exploding stars push materials together. Volcanic heat and water helped shape the same materials. Given enough time, those molecules began to react with each other. From small things, big things grow. We have the broad strokes of this story down, but there are still many questions we could tackle. How did DNA form from RNA? Why didn't the first cells simply pop away? And when exactly did all these steps happen? However, it's high time we move this story forward. As scientists make new discoveries, I'll release update episodes to keep you filled in. For now, let's return to the modern day and work our way back to life's most ancient roots. Part 2. The Tree of Life Before we begin, take a second and find the closest living thing around you. Maybe it's a tree, maybe it's your dog, maybe it's a relative. Let's start with your human relatives. If you have siblings, you probably share at least one biological parent. In that case, your mom and or dad is your common ancestor, the most recent point where the family tree splits. For your cousins, your common ancestors are your grandparents. In other words, you and your cousins have different parents but the same grandparents. When you're at a family reunion, you'll meet distant relatives who share your great-grandparents and beyond. If we expand this idea back in time, we see that every human is related to each other. We all share the same family tree. At this point, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly one person who we could all call grandmother. It's better to think of your ancient ancestors as communities separating from each other and becoming different. On the great Earth calendar, everything I've just described, every human who's ever lived, is crammed into the last 300,000 years, the last half hour of December 31st. But we can go farther back. Let's check out your pets or your favorite animal. You and your dog or cat also share a common ancestor. 
and there are some family resemblances. You both have hair, can make milk, and store eggs inside the body. Sometime 60 million years ago, only December 28th on the calendar, two populations of mammals went their separate ways. One group would start living in trees, becoming primates and us, while the other group became predators, hunting and killing us, before eventually becoming our best friends. We can play the same family game between any two living things on Earth. Tigers and tiger sharks, elm beetles and elm trees, bacteria and Bruce Springsteen. If we lay out all these connections, we would make a gigantic family tree, stretching over billions of years. In fact, Charles Darwin did exactly this in The Origin of Species. It's the only picture in the book. As we rewind in time, there are fewer and fewer branches, fewer living things around. So how far back can we go? When is the beginning? And how do we know? This brings us back to our new friends from episode 21, DNA and RNA. As a quick refresher, DNA is shaped like a twisted zipper. RNA looks like a zipper split in half, only one set of teeth. Yet RNA is arguably even more important than DNA. It helps read the code and turn it into proteins. But RNA isn't perfect. Sometimes it makes a mistake and changes the code. These changes are called mutations. Mutations are a double-edged sword. Most mutations either harm a living thing or have no real effect. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But sometimes RNA makes a happy accident and gives a creature better camouflage or sharper teeth. If the creature lives long enough to have children, the next generation could inherit that mutation. As RNA and DNA make more happy accidents over time, they make completely different living things, different branches on life's great tree. By comparing modern DNA with ancient fossils, we can learn when primates and dogs split apart, or when birds split off from dinosaurs. But when we follow the tree down to its roots, we run into problems. Earth's oldest rocks are few and far between, and the rocks that do exist do not preserve fossils well. Finally, the critters that were around, bacteria and their cousins, do not make the best fossils in the first place. But don't despair. We can still make educated guesses without fossils. For an example, let's revisit the split between dogs and primates. Let's imagine that there are no fossils of dogs or wolves on Earth, none at all. We could still estimate when dogs and primates went their separate ways by comparing DNA. The more differences between codes, the farther back in time they split. This idea is called the molecular clock. As you can imagine, it's not as precise as using fossils, but a rough window of time is better than having no idea at all. The window of time for Earth's earliest life is nearly the entire Hadean, from 4 to 4.5 billion years ago. We really can't be more specific than January or February on the Earth calendar. 
most scientists place the moon formation from episode 8 as a safe early boundary. The planetary collision would likely have erased any earlier versions of life. But while DNA can't give us a specific date, it can tell us which genes the first life had. In other words, we can actually paint a decent portrait of our earliest ancestors. Part 3. Your Greatest Grandmothers Even though we do not have fossils of our oldest ancestor, scientists have still given it a name. A human name, in fact, but probably not the ones you're thinking of. It's time to meet Luca. Luca is actually an acronym. It means the last universal common ancestor, L-U-C-A. As we learned last section, a common ancestor is like a great-grandmother, someone who gave birth to your family members. The word universal just means that Luca is the great-grandmother of all life on Earth today. But what about that word, last? Does that imply that there was life before Luca? Yes. Like any first project, the first cell was a very rough draft, working just well enough to survive and pass DNA to the next generation. As one cell became millions, RNA began to make some mistakes, mutations that tweaked these daughters. One group of cells did very well for themselves, with just the right toolkit to grow, multiply, and drown out the competition. As far as we know, this is the only group that left survivors. This was Luca. So Luca wasn't really one cell, but a community, just like we saw with early humans. For now, I'll keep referring to Luca as a single unit for simplicity. Finally, we've reached the Grand Portrait Gallery, the family album for life on Earth. So what did Luca look like? Where did it live and what did it do? We can answer these questions by looking at DNA and RNA. We don't have DNA from Luca preserved in amber like Jurassic Park, but we can compare modern critters that are the quote-unquote lowest on the tree of life and see what traits they share. Here's what Luca's great-granddaughters tell us. Luca probably looked like a bacterium swimming in water, a microscopic sausage only one micron wide. Luca had a small ring of DNA floating inside, copied and translated by its sister RNA. Luca harvested carbon dioxide and hydrogen from surrounding waters to make energy and grow. In this respect, Luca behaved more like a plant than an animal, it took ingredients from its surroundings instead of eating other Lucas. Two key differences are that Luca didn't use sunlight for energy, and Luca hated oxygen. Any amount would have been lethal. Fortunately, oxygen wouldn't be a problem for a long time to come. Luca did like hot water, hotter than 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius. Just like last episode, 
scientists debate whether Luca hung around deep ocean vents or hot springs on land like Yellowstone. As usual, there are plenty of other debates about just what Luca did or didn't like, but the broad story is surprisingly similar. You might be wondering, if I wanted to look at my most distant cousin today, the closest thing on modern Earth to Luca, where would I look? You wouldn't have to look too far, but I wouldn't recommend looking too closely. One of the closest modern relatives to Luca is an infamous bacteria. You might not know its official name of Clostridium, but you've definitely heard of its diseases, botulism and tetanus. I won't get into gritty medical details, but like Luca, Clostridium hates oxygen. This is why it grows in sheltered zones like food cans for botulism, dirt caked on a nail for tetanus, or inside your gut if it unfortunately gets there. Clostridium isn't as heat-loving as Luca was, but after four billion years, a few things are going to change. Before we wrap up this arc on the earliest life, one final note. You might ask, if life started once on Earth, why didn't it start again? And that's not an unfair question. There's still carbon and energy on the modern world, then it's even more hospitable now. Why aren't completely new critters walking out of the ocean, even on a microscopic scale? In short, to the victor go the spoils. There are many ingredients for life on Earth, but they're gobbled up by the life that's already here, leaving very little for anything else. I'm not saying it's impossible. As we speak, there might be a tiny bubble forming at the bottom of the sea, filled with RNA and proteins. But as soon as any bacteria comes along, that bubble is lunch. In the Hadean, the first life had the advantage of being the only life for millions of years. Lots of time and space for practice. Summary. Life on Earth started sometime between 4.5 and 4 billion years ago, before February 15th on the Earth calendar. The first life was a product of millions of years of slow growth from atoms to molecules to cells. There was a window of time when these first cells just eked by, dividing and mutating. While many perished, some mutations stuck, evolving into LUCA, which would grow and multiply on the early Earth. LUCA looked like a bacteria and lived in hot, oxygen-poor waters on the bottom of the seafloor or in hot springs, turning carbon dioxide into new cells. Some of these cells survive relatively unchanged, while many others would find new paths to travel, becoming every living thing on the planet, including me, including you. And that's the end of Season 1, The Hadean. At the beginning, I called The Hadean the Invisible World, and while there are still many questions left, the fact we know anything about this time with no rocks, no fossils to work with, is incredible. Now, when you look at the moon, the ocean, 
or any living thing on Earth, you'll know a bit more about how it got here. Instead of recapping everything we've learned right now, I'll post a summary episode soon. For the next few weeks, I'll be taking a break for research and relaxation before picking up right where we left off. I want to thank you all for listening this past year. The audience has exploded in the past month, and I'm excited to take the show in new directions. I also want to thank my collaborator, Michelle Verna of Bee Giants Media, for taking a chance on this show. It's been a pleasure making Bedrock so far, and we're only just beginning. Stay tuned in a few weeks when we begin Season 2, The New Dawn, four billion years ago, with Earth's oldest rocks.